Hello, and welcome to the April presentation of The Nutritionist 2020. I am Marianne Fessenden from AMTS. We have a great talk coming up today. I have a few details I need to take care of first. As a reminder to those listening, our format is to deliver a recorded presentation at two times on the webinar day with the presenter joining at the end of each session to answer questions from the listening audience. These educational webinars are multinational. I'm pleased to welcome co-hosts during the question sessions. I am joined by Paula Torillo from Argentina, Elena Bonfante in Italy, Sean Lee for China, Vadim Bakchevnikov in Russia, and Marcelo Ramos from Brazil. Depending on the month, I will be joined by all or some. While some of my co-hosts may not be able to rebroadcast in their own language, their questions give an opportunity for consideration of viewpoints of concern in different farming systems around the world. Depending on how you are listening, you can submit queries through me or one of my attending co-hosts. We will read them and ask the presenter for you. Later, a complete recording of the archived webinars as well as a question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentations whilst driving, we have converted the videos to MP3 files that can be downloaded for offline listening. Those podcasts can be found at the Ag Model Systems website under the Webinar tab or the Resources tab. April 22nd marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day here in the U.S. Six months ago, the thoughts and attention of much of the world were focused on the discussion of climate change. Now, we have all but forgotten, as many of you are likely listening to us, finding yourselves working from home and self-quarantining as we combat the global coronavirus pandemic. So often, animal agriculture is targeted as a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. We know we all need to pay attention and do what we can to limit the negative effect our industry can have on the planet. We also know we have a growing population on our planet that needs to be well-fed with finite resources. Our next speaker has a lot of experience addressing these issues. Today, we are joined by Dr. Frank Mittler. Frank received his master's degree in animal science from the University of Leipzig in Germany and his PhD in animal science from Texas Technical University. He started his academic career at the University of California, Davis, where he is a professor in animal science and air quality specialist. Dr. Mittler is frequently sought after for his expertise and ability to bring stakeholders together to address issues regarding air quality and agricultural efficiencies and sustainability. His work in this regard has included serving as chairman of a global United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO Partnership Project, to benchmark the environmental footprint of agriculture production. He was a work group member on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, PCAST, under President Barack Obama and a member of the National Academies of Science Institute of Medicine, IOM, Committee on a Framework for Assessing the Health, Environmental, and Social Effects of the Food System. You can find him on Twitter at GHGGuru. We are honored to have him join us this month. His topic is the 2050 challenge, feeding the planet without wasting it. Please now enjoy Frank's presentation. Remember to jot down any questions you have during the presentation and type them in the Q&A window or the chat window. We will have an opportunity for him to answer those questions after the presentation. Hi, 
It's a great pleasure for me to join you today and uh, talk to you about the so-called 2050 challenge, feeding the planet without wasting it. My name is Frank McLerner and I'm a professor and air quality specialist in the Department of Animal Science here at UC Davis. I'm also the director of the CLEAR Center, which is a new center here on campus, which I established to do research and communication along the lines of agricultural air quality, um, quantifying air quality impacts, greenhouse gas impacts, and so on from animal agriculture, and finding ways to mitigating. If you are on Twitter uh, or you're thinking about it, I would definitely encourage you to do so. And uh, once you're there, uh, please join me at GHG Guru. Uh, I have a pretty active social media life, even in these crazy times. I also have a blog, and the blog address is here. So uh, if you wonder uh, whether a lot of the things that you hear reported day in, day out, whether they are uh, factual or not, um, you might want to check in my blog because I am quite active in uh, discussing some of those claims that are out there and that are frequently made. <clears throat> I will now talk to you about climate change. Uh, just for a few minutes, I want to provide you with a background, uh, a little one-on-one, so to say. So first of all, this is not a lecture on you know, where the climate change takes place. I think it's uh, pretty much accepted by the vast majority of scientists that indeed our climate is changing. Some people argue that it's not human activity that's driving it, uh, but I'm not within that camp. I do think human activity is driving a changing climate. And uh, the question I have in particular because of my line of research is, what contribution does livestock have in a changing climate? What you see here is a depiction of the North Pole. You see in red the, the extent of the ice cap about 20, 30 years ago. And then in white, you see where it is today. All over the world, we see various areas where indeed the climate is changing. And, uh, uh, and that has pretty profound impacts, by the way, particularly for agriculture, because uh, agriculture is quite susceptible to it. Uh, we do not tolerate floodings and drought and uh, major storms and so on, as well as other parts of society would. <clears throat> this slide here is a pretty important one. It shows an image of the sun radiating down the solar beams uh, to the surface of the Earth, and normally those solar beams would be reflected back into space if there weren't these so-called greenhouse gases. Gases such as CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, and so on, they form a blanket. Just really imagine a blanket over the Earth's atmosphere. And the incoming solar radiation that's reflected off by the surface of the Earth is pretty much bouncing between the Earth's surface and this, this layer, this blanket of greenhouse gases. This blanket of greenhouse gases pretty much keeps that solar energy in our atmosphere and prevents it from leading back into space. And because this blanket is becoming pretty thick because of the abundance of many of those greenhouse gas molecules, um, it gets warmer and warmer. So what are the greenhouse gases that we're dealing with here? The ones that we mainly deal with in agriculture are listed here. On top you see CO2, carbon dioxide, followed by methane and then nitrous oxide. In the past, the only way to differentiate those gases was by means of the so-called global warming potential. <clears throat> the global warming potential is supposed to describe how, let's say, methane and nitrous oxide, how they compare to a gas such as CO2. 
And so about 30 years ago, scientists were asked to explain that to policymakers and they provided these so-called global warming potential numbers saying that methane is anywhere between 25 to 28 times more potent in trapping heat from the sun than CO2 is. And that nitrous oxide is almost 300 times more potent than CO2. Now, this conversion was only done uh, to show how these gases compare relatively to one another with respect to what's called CO2 equivalence. So 28 molecules of methane equal, sorry, one molecule of methane equals 28 molecules of CO2. One molecule of nitrous oxide equals almost 300 molecules of CO2. And that's expressed as the global warming potential. But the name is really deceptive because what it really describes uh, this so-called global warming potential is the equivalency of those uh, gases to one another. It does not, for example, describe the true warming impact of a gas such as methane. But that's really what we're after. We want to know how does, for example, what livestock produces with respect to methane, how does that contribute to warming? And if we were to reduce those methane emissions, how could that reduce warming? And so because of that, there is a uh, a, a growing number of scientists who questions the use of this so-called global warming potential and who proposes an alternative, a new way of quantifying uh, greenhouse gases, particularly short-lived climate, climate pollutants such as methane. I use that term short-lived climate pollutant for a reason and I will tell you in a minute why. But before I do that, I want to show you this slide here. It's uh, from the National Academy of Sciences recent report on uh, human-caused methane. Um, and what you see here uh, is the global methane budget. On the left side of this global methane budget, you see various sources emitting methane, such as fossil fuel production and use, agriculture and waste, biomass burning, wetlands, and other natural emissions. On the other side, uh, you see sinks. So for the global methane budget, you have sources on the left side and then sinks on the other side. And, uh, and that's important because most people always report sources only. So they say agriculture and waste, for example, emits 188, you see that number there uh, to the left, 188 uh, teragrams of methane per year. Um, and that's true, uh, these, these sources emit these numbers that are indicated here, uh, totaling 558, and that's that first half bubble you see here on top, 558 teragrams of methane per year. What many of these reports that you frequently hear leave out is that methane is not just produced, again, 560 teragrams globally, but methane is also destroyed. On the left, on the right side, you see total sinks throughout the world. And if you look at the number, you see that the number for total sinks is 548. So on the left side, you see that 500, let's call that 560 teragrams of methane are produced every day, uh, every year in the world, uh, but 550 teragrams of methane are being destroyed and or uh, trapped in the soil. So that process, by the way, by which methane is destroyed is referred to as oxidation, or to be precise, hydroxyl oxidation. So methane is not just produced, but methane is also destroyed. And the net 
the net emissions that occur every year in the world are not 560, but they are 10. That's the difference between net emissions versus net sinks. So the total methane budget globally is 10. Uh, that's the net production of methane per year. So that's very important to know. It's not just produced, it's also destroyed. Now, and because of that, methane is referred to as a short-lived climate pollutant. It's not just produced, as I just said, but also destroyed. And as a result, it's referred to as a short-lived climate pollutant. And that's in contrast to CO2 and nitrous oxide, both of which you see here. CO2 has a lifespan of a thousand years. Nitrous oxide, a lifespan of 110 years. And so these are referred to as long-lived climate pollutants versus methane having a lifespan of only 10 years, methane being destroyed after 10 years and converted into CO2 and water. So that's really important for you to know. Methane is very different from the other greenhouse gases because it's not just produced but also destroyed. This slide here is an important one. You see on the left side um, the so-called biogenic carbon cycle. Um, so I take you back to your to your school days here and and um, you know talking about photosynthesis and and the question what plants need to grow. What do plants need to grow? Now we know they need water, they need sunshine so light, and they need CO2. The C in the CO2, on the left side here, you see CO2. Um, the C is the carbon that plants need to grow carbohydrates. Carbohydrates such as cellulose and other sugars. And uh, that occurs in photosynthesis, as I, as I just said. So carbon is pulled from the air and inside the plants converted into cellulose and other carbohydrates. So now a cow comes along and will convert some of those carbohydrates into methane gas, that's CH4. And she will belch this methane out or uh, her manure will produce some of that methane. So that methane is now in the atmosphere and the C in the CH4, so the C in the CH4 is the carbon, um, which is <clears throat> Uh, not new carbon, but that's actually the carbon that um, was originally in the air in form of CO2. Uh, the methane stays in the atmosphere for 10 years, which you see here, and is then converted into CO2 again. In other words, in this biogenic carbon cycle that you see here, carbon is not added to the atmosphere as additional carbon, but it really is recycled carbon. You have CO2 from the atmosphere, that carbon goes into plants, is eaten by cows, is belched out or produced by a manure uh, in form of methane. That methane then becomes CO2 again. So this is referred to as the biogenic carbon cycle. In this cycle, you're not adding new additional carbon to the atmosphere. You're also not adding new additional methane to the atmosphere because the amount of methane that's produced by those animals equals the amount of methane that's being destroyed. Now, that's a pill to swallow for some, but that's the way it goes with respect to the biogenic carbon cycle. Constant herds of livestock will not add additional new carbon to the atmosphere, and hence, not new additional warming. This stands in sharp contrast to what you see on the right side of the slide. You see the fossil fuels, which, by the way, are the main source of greenhouse gases worldwide and, of course, also here in the United States. 
What are fossil fuels? Oil, coal, gas. Pure carbon that was stored in the ground for a long time and a very long time that also used to be plant material and animal material. The energy contained therein is the energy from the sun uh, from millions of years ago uh, that accumulated during photosynthesis back then. So those fossil fuels had been stored in the ground for a very long time. And over the last 60, 70 years, we have extracted a very large amount of these fossil fuels. Not just have we extracted them, but we have burned them. And because of that, that carbon is now no longer in the ground, locked away, but it's in the atmosphere because we've burned that fossil fuel uh, to drive us, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to be used in transportation and or uh, cooling, heating of our homes and so forth. So the fossil fuel carbon is new, is additional carbon to the atmosphere. Every time we extract it, every time we burn that fossil fuel, we're adding new additional CO2 to the atmosphere at rates that by far overwhelm all natural ecosystems, such as oceans and soils and plants and so forth. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the main reason why we see increasing rates of greenhouse gases, because we are increasing consumption of fossil fuels, and that is new additional carbon. So again, just to sum this slide up, on the left side, you see the biogenic carbon cycle of carbon cycling from the atmosphere to the plants to the animal, to the atmosphere to the plants to the animal. This is a carbon cycle, not adding additional carbon. On the right side, you see the fossil fuel related uh, greenhouse gas um, production from fossil fuels uh, into the atmosphere, and that is a one-way street, not a cycle. So in other words, if herd sizes, let's say cow numbers, beef numbers, and so on, if they do not increase for 10 years, then we do not produce additional methane. And if we don't produce additional methane, then we're not producing additional warming. So what I'm saying here is that because of the 10-year lifespan of methane, the amount of methane produced and the amount of methane destroyed are almost the same. What does the EPA say with respect to greenhouse gases from various sectors of society? Here on this, uh, this slide, you see uh, transportation on the left, followed by power production, industry, agriculture, and so forth. So what this slide shows is that the EPA assigns almost 80% of all greenhouse gases to those fossil fuel using sectors of transportation, 28%, power production, 28%, industry, and that's mainly the cement industry, 22%. So these three combined are over 80%. And then comes agriculture. They use the cow to depict agriculture, and but uh, this is not animal agriculture. This is all of agriculture combined. Animal agriculture alone in the United States, according to the EPA's emission inventories, uh, amounts to 3.9%, call that 4% of the total. So these are the official numbers for the United States. Oftentimes, uh, left out of any kind of discussion, uh, we, we hear in the media that livestock rival transportation as greenhouse gas source and so forth, but uh, please don't be fooled. Um, when people make these comparisons, um, they make two mistakes. The one mistake is that these comparisons of livestock to transportation are a global comparison because globally there are many inefficient countries with very large livestock herds. Globally, livestock amounts 
over 14%, one four of greenhouse gases, and uh, the transportation sector is within that general realm. But in the United States, that's very different. Here in California, for example, all of livestock and dairy emits about 5%. Transportation emits 50%, five zero. But again, um, in the United States, all animal agriculture combined, that's beef, dairy, swine, uh, small ruminants, and feed, are 4% of the total. If you're interested in learning more about methane and why we currently uh, really use a... Uh, a matrix that is inappropriate, the so-called global warming potential, that uh, does not appropriately characterize the warming potential of methane, um, and why it should be changed to the so-called GWP star. If you're interested in that, you should read these papers here. They have links to more technical, uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers if you want to really get into the depth of it, but it really will explain why uh, we need to change the way that we characterize methane because we're currently using wrong assumptions uh, around the short-lived climate pollutant. And as a result, we are blaming livestock to being the main culprit of climate or one of the main culprit of climate change. Um, and, and that is just simply not, not uh, appropriate. If you think of uh, all the sources emitting um, uh, all the all the sorry all the emissions that are emitted by uh, by our food system um, by far the number one detrimental part of our food system uh, not just with respect to greenhouse gases but everything environmental um, the most detrimental part of our food system is really depicted on this slide what you see here is a average u.s family uh, in front of all the food that is wasted uh, you can see a lot of milk on the left. You see a lot of fruits and vegetables. You see meat in the front. Um, an unbelievable amount of food is wasted every year um, by people like you and I. 40% of food in the United States, 40% of the food that's produced is wasted. By far the most um, environmentally disconcerting part of our food system is really what's going to the landfills. And this is... Uh, really something that all of us have to consider and work on because uh, the consumer level is actually um, the level where the majority of food losses, food waste occur. So it's not at the farm, even though the farms are of course a major part of the environmental footprint of our food system, but the number one um, culprit of environmental impacts uh, is really depicted here. I will now talk about the so-called 2050 challenge. The title of my talk has that, that word in it, the 2050 challenge, and it's depicted on this slide. On the x-axis here, you see the year 1750 to 2050, hence the name 2050 challenge. On the z-axis, you see the total human population in the world in billions. So I just turned 50, and when I was a little boy, we were here at 3 billion people. Today, we are at 7.6 billion. And by the time I'm an old man, we'll be here at 9.5 billion, 9.5 billion people. In other words, throughout my lifetime and maybe yours, human population on our planet will have tripled. But the natural resources to feed these people will not have tripled. We will not have three times more water, fertilizer, land or others um, in order to feed a, a, a drastically growing uh, demand for, for food. 
but we are pretty much um, limited by what we have currently. What you see on this slide here uh, is also interesting two colors, the one orange depicting um, developed countries such as the Americas and Europe, and then in blue you see developing countries. So these are uh, third world countries and emerging countries uh, where you can see that world human population is really going through the roof. In the developed world, uh, our human population is pretty much plateauing, but in the developing and emerging countries, it's going through the roof, and that's mainly because of increasing life expectancies. People in these countries grow older, and that's something we all strive for, but cumulatively, it just means we have more mouths to feed. This here is one of my favorite slides. It shows a um, satellite image of the world and uh, a circle over South Southeast Asia. And that circle there contains more people in it than the rest of the world combined. So more people live inside the circle than outside the circle. And I find that just um, amazing, you know, an amazing depiction. But the population increase in South Southeast Asia is not the one that's um, the most worrisome in the world. Uh, the most worrisome in the world is actually Africa. Um, in Africa, human population on on a continent level, will go up over 50%. Those, those uh, countries here in red are all countries with a human population increase of over 100%. Every 10 years, human population in these red countries uh, will double. So every 10 years, human population in these red countries doubles, and that is a real cause for food security concerns. You see, Asia also has some countries, such as India and Bangladesh, where human population will increase by about a, a quarter or so. And that's, uh, of course, uh, disconcerting, particularly because India uh, being such a large uh, country. But, uh, but uh, Africa is really uh, most disconcerting at this point. So here you can see, again, um, human population increase over Asia, Asian, the Asian region is 41%. In Africa, it's 50%. The Americas will increase slightly by around uh, 4 to 7%, and Europe will actually shrink. So, all of that uh, is one side of the story. That's the supply story, um, the demand story. The supply story is depicted here. Um, this is how limited we are with respect to global cropland, whether we have 3, 7, 9, or 12 billion people in the world. This here in color is all the land we have to grow food for these people. And so, in other words, we have to become a whole lot more efficient in how we produce food for the world or else we will have food security issues. This slide here is an important one. It shows the relationship um, between milk production per cow on the x-axis. So that's milk production per cow per year. And on the y-axis, you see the carbon footprint per unit of milk produced per cow per year. Um, and what this slide pretty much shows is a bunch of dots, and each dot indicates uh, the milk production normalized uh, for the 200 countries in the world. So what this slide shows is that on the left side, there are many countries uh, with very low milk production. We're talking 500 to 1,000 kilos, so that's less than 2,000 pounds of milk produced per cow per year. And as you can see, there are many countries that fall into that category. On the, run, on the right side, you see that there are many countries with much higher productivity 
And with a higher productivity, you can see that the carbon footprint drastically drops. So milk production per cow per year is directly related to the carbon footprint uh, produced per uh, unit of milk. So the more productive your cows are, the relatively lower is your carbon footprint, but not just that, also the water footprint, the other air impacts and so on. So production efficiencies and emission intensities are related. And um, that's a very important point to be made. This slide here from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations shows the carbon footprint per unit of food, uh, fat and protein corrected milk on the y-axis and on the x-axis you see various regions in the world and again North America here to the left it's actually the, the area in the world with the lowest carbon footprint in milk production. Um, the rest of the world pretty much envies us for how we produce milk and um, not just with respect to the efficiencies themselves, production efficiencies, but also with respect to how that relates to our, our environmental footprint per unit of milk produced. One of my earlier slides, I showed you the African continent and human population increase. And you might remember the red color. Those same areas are those that lead the charge here. You see here, um, Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia. These are the, the main regions in the world where the carbon footprint of milk production is the highest. It's not just milk production. It is the carbon footprint of all agricultural production is the highest. And the reason for this is that the efficiencies of food production in these areas are the lowest. So in other words, in order to satisfy the demand that their populations have, they need to have livestock herds that are very large in size. For example, India, with a human population of 1.3 billion people, has about 300 million lactating uh, dairy animals, whether that's cows or buffalo, 300 million. The United States has 9 million. They have 300 million. And the reason why they have 300 million is because on a per animal base, each cow produces a dismal amount of milk. And that's why they need so many animals. So, and that drives the carbon footprint, the environmental footprint of these regions, as, it's, as, as I depict on that slide. You might be interested in what the overall carbon footprint of the U.S. Uh, dairy is. Um, for the United States, 2% of all greenhouse gases, of all greenhouse gases emitted in the United States, stem from the dairy sector. On this slide here, please feel free to take a photo, or I'm also happy to send um, a PDF slide or a PDF file of, of this presentation. You see fluid milk, cheese and whey, and other dairy, um, and how they contribute to the overall carbon footprint of these dairy products. You see on the right side in the, in the legend um, that the dark green is feed production, the light green is on-farm emissions and so on. So you can, by looking at the slide, figure out what part of the process of producing dairy contributes the most to its environmental footprint. Sometimes people uh, discuss water demand um, by dairy uh, that is probably one of the greater environmental concerns that I think are substantiated. Um, about 5% of all water consumed in the United States goes to the dairy sector. 
And as you can see on the right side of this slide, the feed irrigation is actually the one, the, the sector where the majority of that water goes. So uh, irrigating fields is where the majority of that blue water goes that, um, that is um, entering or being used in the dairy sector. So, as I said before, we have differences throughout the world with respect to the environmental footprint of livestock. And this slide here attempts to describe why. You see four bubbles. On the left, you see improved fertility. That means we've learned to increase reproductive efficiency. We have uh, improved the health by vaccinating or treating sick animals or preventing sickness. We have learned to improve the genetics of both plant materials that becomes feed and or animal material. Um, and we have learned to feed more energy dense diets. These four more, these four sectors of uh, reproduction and veterinary care and improved genetics and uh, the feed sector have allowed us to shrink our livestock numbers, our herds and flocks to historic lows. Never before have we had uh, you know, fewer livestock over the last 30, 40, 50 years than we do today. On this slide here, you see uh, a couple of these stats uh, listed. Back in 1950, we used to have 25 million dairy cows. Today we have only 9 million. So that's 16 million cows we have today versus 1950. But with these 16 million fewer cows, we are producing 60% more milk. 60% more milk with much fewer cows. And that means that the carbon footprint of a glass of milk has shrunk by two thirds. And this achievement is something we could achieve throughout the world by helping other countries adopt techniques, technologies that are custom fit to their needs um, I, for example, believe that a country like India that currently has 300 million lactating animals could produce the same amount of milk as they do today with 50 million. So they could drastically reduce their herd size and produce the same amount of milk if they were to produce in a more sustainable manner as they do today. So sometimes people wonder, uh, you know, how does this uh, dairy herd that we have today, how does it compare uh, historically? Have we ever had 9 million dairy cows before? The answer to that is yes, we did. And on this slide here, you see these are USDA data from 1867 until 2018. And what you see here is that today, as I told you before, we have 9 million cows. Back in 1950, we had 25 million cows. Um, but really the first time, the last time that we had 9 million cows was back in 1867. And in 1867, we had 30 million people in this country, about tenfold fewer people in the United States. And uh, at that time, we had the same dairy population as we do today. But today, the 9 million dairy cows are, of course, way more efficient than they used to be historically. And this is why we were able to shrink our herd to where it is today. And this has really minimized the environmental footprint. That's the reason why the environmental impacts of the dairy sector have come down so much, because we can produce much more with much fewer animals. And that has led to a drastic shrinkage of um, the dairy herd. And the associated environmental footprint, of course.
So sometimes people say, well, how about um, we reduce the environmental footprint of dairy, of livestock by just eating differently? How about we all become vegetarians or vegans, or at least part-time vegetarians or vegans? Well, people have done the math. Several scientists have done the math and uh, looked at that. So for example, they, they looked at how does a conversion from an omnivore, somebody who eats everything, to someone becoming a vegan, how does, that, um, how does that turn out with respect to carbon emissions? So if you were an omnivore right now, turning a vegan for one year, then that would reduce your carbon footprint by 0.8 tons, 0.8 tons of greenhouse gases, of CO2 equivalents. Contrast that to one transatlantic flight per passenger, which amounts to 1.6 tons. So in other words, going vegan for one year would be half the saving of uh, what one transatlantic flight would amount to. If the entire United States were to go meatless Monday or 320 million Americans were to go meatless Monday, we would reduce this country's greenhouse gases by 0.3%. And if the entire United States were to go vegan altogether, the entire population, that would amount to a total reduction of greenhouse gases by 2.6%. But the authors of this Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences report uh, cautioned that if we were to go vegan as a nation, we would not be able to satisfy the nutritional needs of essential macro and micronutrients. What I also find very interesting is when I look into uh, the whole vegan, what they call vegan movement, I don't call it vegan movement because it's really not a movement. It's a movement at the head of some who try to portray it as such. But when you, when you listen to, um, let's say, the vegan society of the United States and what their concerns are, they will tell you one of their major concerns is the so-called retention rate. And what that means is, that for every one active vegan we have in the United States today, for every one active vegan, there are five former vegans. And what that really means is that we have a very high amount of vegans who stay vegans, but only for one year. And this slide here shows it. It is from one of those uh, vegan societies here in the United States. It shows that 84% of all vegetarians and vegans abandon their diet after one year. You see here uh, this pie graph there in the center uh, showing that 10% of the entire U.S. population uh, tried veganism and vegetarianism out for, for a year and uh, 2% uh, remain. So for every one active, there are five former vegans and vegetarians. So to me, the reason why I show this is because this form of nutrition is tooted by many as... Um, the gold standard we should all aspire to. If this were a gold standard, people would not abandon it at that rate. There is something, there must be something missing, whether that is taste, whether it's nutrition, I don't know. But um, if this were such a successful diet, uh, then the retention rate would be very different from what it is here. So, um, in summary, um, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC and others, uh, say that about 70 to 80% of all global greenhouse gases uh, occur in developing countries. They really don't have to. We could reduce that number drastically, allow them to produce the food they need, 
with a fraction of the environmental footprint. Technologies are available and regenerative practices possible to drastically reduce environmental impacts to air, to water, to climate. Um, it's very important to note that production, production intensity and emission intensity are inversely related. Now think of your car and think of the car your parents drove or the car that your grandparents drove. You know that, of course, your cars today are much more fuel efficient than your parents' or grandparents' cars were. And as a result of these improved fuel efficiencies, you're producing much less emissions. And the same is true for livestock. Our livestock is way more efficient today than it used to be historically. Our livestock here in the U.S. is way more efficient than it is in the rest of the world. And that has a profound impact to emissions. Um, we are oftentimes um, quoted throughout the world, and I do travel quite extensively, um, throughout the world as being a role model in efficiency. And um, because of that, we actually have low emissions uh, per unit of product produced. Uh, unfortunately, that news has not really hit the mainstream media. Um, I don't know why people in agriculture don't talk about this more often. In my opinion, they should because uh, this is a huge advantage we have. Uh, for example, just think about that. We are producing 18%, one eight, 18% of the global beef with 8% of the global beef cattle. Uh, the list goes on and on for poultry, for pigs, and so on. We have a lot to be proud of, and we have a lot that we can share with others. Um, I think that it's time to really get that message home and, uh, and talk about it. So with this, I closed my presentation. I, uh, I'm very happy to entertain any questions you might have. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Frank, for a great webinar. We will get to the questions in a minute. Before we introduce next month's speaker and thank our co-hosts and sponsors, I want to tell you of a short webinar series we are doing partnering with the Canola Council of Canada. We are bringing you a three-part webinar series highlighting new research and findings and the practical application of these findings in dairy feed formulation. We held our first webinar in this series on March 31st. It was an interview with Daniel Scothorn and you can find it on our website under webinars. On April 28th, we will hold a webinar with Dr. Antonio Fasciola, an assistant professor at the University of Florida. The overarching goal of his program is to improve the efficiency of nutrient utilization in dairy cows to enhance production and minimize its environmental impact. Dr. Fasciola will discuss his research into how he demonstrated that canola meal improves milk production when used in the diet of dairy cows. The webinar is sponsored by the Canola Council of Canada in conjunction with AMTS. It will be followed by a question and answer period with the audience. It will take place at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on April 28th. For more information and how to sign up, you can go to the AMTS Coming Events page. Let me introduce you to the next month's speaker and thank my co-hosts and webinar sponsors. Next month, we will be joined by Dr. Bill Stone, who serves as the Director of Ruminant Technical Services for Diamond V. 
He received his DMV at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his PhD in Applied Dairy Nutrition from Cornell University. His primary areas of interest are dairy cattle nutrition and feeding management, forage management, and identification of bottlenecks on dairies. Please join us for the presentation followed by the live question and answer session twice on May 14th. The presentation will start at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Also, to give us save the date notice, if you enjoyed today's webinar, we will be hosting Jude Capper, a noted livestock sustainability consultant, in our June Nutritionist webinar. As a point of interest, and possibly because I'm spending too much time at a computer lately, she can also be found on Twitter. Her Twitter name is Bovadiva. We have a guru and a diva this year. I'm not sure how, how I will follow that up next season. As you know, these webinars take a lot of work and cooperation. The webinars are organized and produced by AMTS USA and Global. Our longtime collaborator is Paula Torillo of Afina, who hosts the series as El Webinar del Nutritionista. She receives support from Guermo Lerman, Technal, Rock River Lab in Argentina, Biotur, and Concar. She has the excellent translation skills of Paula Alanis backing her up. We also want to thank AMTS distributors. In Italy, Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations Italia. In China, Sean Lee of AnsiTech. In Brazil, Marcelo Hens Ramos, director of 3R Lab. And in Russia, Vadim Bekchavnikov of Nova Lab. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cow health, and the Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Our silver sponsors are Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition through Amino Acids, makers of Agipro-L, Dairyland Laboratories, and also Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA, Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. Our bronze sponsors are Dairy One Forage Laboratory, Amino Max, Adiseo, Purdue Agribusiness, PMI, and Soychlor. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. I will now open the floor up to questions. English language listeners, I will read your question. Remember to type it in the Q&A tab or the chat window. Switch over our share so that if we need to, we can move to a particular slide. Thank you all for joining us today. We have a few questions um, in the chat window already. Frank and Elena are, have joined us here. So if everybody would just say hello. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, Hi, Elena, hello. Hi, Mariana. Um, let's see, so Elena, if you have some questions you want to start out with, you can. If you don't, um, I have some questions I can go with. So just let I, me know how you would like to lead off. Yeah, I can. Um, I mean, I have one now. Okay. So um, I can go. Yes. All so right, go ahead. I, 
Thank you, Frank, for the great presentation. Actually, I would like to invite you here in Italy to give the speech because, uh, yeah, it's not a, a nice situation here as well for the agriculture, you know, sector. And even uh, in this uh, moment, you know, with the coronavirus and such that they, uh, you know, sponsor, they say to produce or to use more you know, national products, they still are uh, complaining about uh, agriculture and, uh, you know, how... Uh, is I mean they do a lot of waste and so on. So, um, but my question is uh, related, uh, you know, uh, in focusing on developing countries, uh, on the you know uh, our countries, so US and Europe. Um, do you think uh, so? Where do you think uh, we have to be more efficient? Uh, uh, in the animal, you know, production uh, in the barn, uh, as I could say, or uh, in the field, so um, feed uh, for the feed production. Well, first of all, uh, my warmest greetings to uh, to Italy, one of my favorite countries in the world. I know you're going through through so much, and uh, and my my uh, my heart is with you. Um, Thank you very much. I have traveled the world extensively, uh, developing countries uh, on all continents, uh, as well as, as developed countries. And I see that there are challenges throughout the world that are really um, tremendous, uh, both uh, in animal agriculture and crop agriculture. Um, and the challenges are that um, genetics are lacking uh, both on the on the plant side and the animal side. Uh, the genetic material is just deficient and uh, thus the animals cannot, uh, and the same is true for crops, uh, produce yields that are um, appropriate for what they could be theoretically. On the side of animal agriculture, we have many areas in the world where we don't have appropriate veterinary care, where we don't have appropriate vaccination, deworming, treatment of parasites, treatment of diseases, um, where we don't have appropriate feeding for animals. Um, if you, for example, look at a country like India and what is fed to cows there, um, you would understand why the production levels are what they are. I mean, a thousand kilograms uh, of milk per cow per year is not unusual there. And this is just simply not acceptable because you need to have so many animals to produce a given amount of, of product uh, that it's not really sustainable. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Elena. Um, I'm gonna ask some questions now. You said you had one and um, please, if you have more, just shoot me a message in the chat window and I'll make sure that I um, turn over to you. So I have a number coming in from both in the question window and the chat window and some that were sent to me prior to the webinar. So we'll just start right at the top. Um, this, is, this is a question, by reducing nitrogen intake for a similar or high production, would the formulation of rations for dairy cows on the basis of amino acids rather than on the metabolizable protein be an advantage for the emission of greenhouse gases? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think so, because we would be more precise in addressing the nutritional needs of the cows on the one hand and uh, reducing unwanted nitrogen excretion on the other hand. 
um, the reduction of unwanted nitrogen would then reduce um, a whole host of reactive nitrogen that comes out. Uh, it starts with urea that's, that's turned into a, a whole host of things such as nitrous oxide, the greenhouse gas, uh, or ammonia, or nitrite, nitrate, and so forth. So a, a very precise feeding of um, amino acids, I think, would be a, a really great advantage in many places in the world that's not happening right now. Yes, and Frank, we have some very excellent nutritionists that perhaps are a little bit more well-versed on this particular uh, question, response to this sort of question. So they should feel very welcome to go ahead and shoot a message in the chat window, and I will um, read that later. So um, moving to the next question, soya is an important component of diets in increasing output per dairy cow. I understand much deforestation with the loss of carbon sequestration is driven by soya production. Has this been factored into greenhouse gas benefits of increasing dairy cow output? Um, so the issue of uh, deforestation and soy is one really that is mainly associated with uh, the Amazon reason, uh, region in, uh, in Brazil. Um, my understanding is that the vast majority of soy that's used here in the United States stems from the United States. Um, with respect to global um, soy, uh, any kind of life cycle assessment that looks into, um, let's say, dairy or beef uh, would look into where the different feeds, uh, feedstuff, where that feedstuff comes from. And um, if it comes from Brazil, then uh, those issues of deforestation and so on will be, uh, will be figured in. I think the, a very small actual um, contribution of uh, deforestation is really affecting the carbon footprint of U.S. beef and U.S. dairy. Uh, it's more an issue in Europe and particularly in China um, where a lot of soy is imported from places where deforestation occurs. Frank, can you help me on this? <laughs> can you see the slides that I'm navigating through? Tell me which uh, number. Actually, this one. I, I do not. Oh, there. yeah. This is, a, this is a slide that shows the carbon footprint of dairy production throughout the world. So this is not uh, soy production or soy okay. specifically, but this is... This is pretty much the carbon footprint of dairy production in different regions in the world. That's what this slide shows. And, right, uh, right. And so that may relate some to their um, cropping. This relates to the entire life cycle impacts of dairy. So what this shows okay. is if you want to produce a gallon of milk, what's the carbon footprint um, in North America, South America, and other parts of the world? Uh, in doing so. And what you see here is that there are certain areas in the world that have a relatively low and others that have a relatively high carbon footprint uh, to producing milk. And you can see there, there are three peaks standing out. And those three peaks standing out are the same regions in the world um, where human population increase is the highest and agricultural productivity the lowest. And that is a deadly combination mm -hmm. because in most of those areas, human population is galloping. 
that means they are in, in many of these cases doubling human population every decade, but they are not holding up with respect to agricultural productivity. And that is a very um, troublesome development. Okay. Um, th thank you for clarifying that. Um, I have a series of questions from one of our people in Brazil. This is from Marcos Neves Piera, and he is at one of the universities in Brazil. He sends us questions that are fantastic and apply to sort of the Brazilian standpoint. Um, starting with, what would the impact of a hypothetical dairy sector totally based on perennial forages in substitution to annual crops on the capacity of soils and crops to retain carbon would you expect a large difference between temperate, um, low-producing versus tropical, high-producing forages? And could it significantly affect net carbon in the atmosphere? So if I understand the question correctly, um, you know, what, what would happen if we were to turn the dairy sector into a pastoral sector, pretty much? Um, yes. And then, and then whether or not... Um, tropical uh, forages would have a higher potential. So um, in some parts of the world, a conversion to pastoral systems could work. In uh, places of the developed world, uh, in my opinion, not so much. Um, and the reason for this is that there are serious land use, I would almost call them land use wars going on throughout the world. Uh, whether it's in the UK or whether it's in Ireland, whether it's uh, here in the United States, in various places, um, societies almost push agriculture off the land and particularly of marginal lands. Uh, marginal lands are generally those, as I explained earlier, um, where you cannot really grow crops, but you can grow forages uh, to feed livestock. Um, so these uh, pastoral systems, of course, work and they work well, particularly in, in marginal areas. Um, and they can be very productive as well. Uh, here in our regions, not as productive as systems that have, um, that import the feed, uh, that feed more of a TMR type. Um, what also is a consideration is what the animals eat. What the animals eat in a pastoral system is, of course, a diet very high in roughage. And let's not forget, roughage is what drives methane. The more roughage is in the diet, the greater is the methane. So um, the productivity is, is lower in the pastoral systems. Uh, the roughage in the diet is higher, and hence the amount of methane produced per unit of um, uh, milk produced is higher in the pastoral systems. Can it be done? Absolutely. And if it's done in tropical areas, uh, it's even more efficient um, because C4 grasses and so on are, of course, highly productive. So okay, thank you. Um, that sort of leads a little bit into the next question from Brazil. Um, and this was and also addressing the methane versus nitrogen. Um, assuming that the nitrous oxide has a longer half-life and greater global warming potential than methane, as nutrition is focused on reducing nitrogen loss in feces and urine, um, 
would that be a higher reduction in ruminal methane than than the reduction of ruminal methane per unit of feed digested? Um, in my opinion, a lot of the discussion that's currently being held centering around methane is really um, ill-advised. I think much more focus should be on nitrous oxide. And the reason uh, is really that the methane picture um, that's not discussed is the fact that methane is not just produced but also destroyed. It happens in 10 years. The story is very different for nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is in the atmosphere for hundreds for at least a hundred years, if not if not long, if not hundreds of years, and it's highly potent. It's almost almost ten times more potent than 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 methane. So any kind of mitigation addressing nitrous oxide is really important. And the reason why we are not hearing this right now is because um, nitrous oxide is more related to plant agriculture and. Um, and not to animal agriculture, even though it is, of course, a factor in animal agriculture. And, uh, you know, there's just not as much um, politicizing around nitrous oxide as there is for methane. Simply because uh, our special friends are using methane in order to get rid of animal agriculture, particularly ruminant agriculture. Uh, in my opinion, if it were really about warming and lowering the warming aspect, we definitely would shift our focus to nitrous oxide. And... Uh, nutrition, nitrogen-related, uh, protein-related nutrition is a centerpiece of minimizing nitrous oxide. Um, we had a comment. We have a comment from Mike Hutchins, who's one of our listeners, and he said, "You're correct. Amino acid balancing, true nitrogen requirement, should reduce nitrogen losses and lower feed costs. Forage sources, nitrogen level, nitrogen form, RDP versus RUP, and amino acid profile become key factors, along with the true milk protein yield. Um, so, yes, and and this this somewhat addresses in in our country." Perhaps the the politics polit I can't say that word politicization of um, our method of farming. There's there's much disdain for what we term conventional farming that is done in free stalls with a TMR type ration versus um, a pasture system. And in actuality, the pasture system with its lower milk production and its um, greater greater methane and potentially poorer ability to balance the nitrogen sources, wouldn't that be a more damaging, um, damaging to the environment type system? So uh, there's a caveat. Okay. On the one hand, uh, it's true that a pastoral system will have relatively higher methane as a result of uh, the cows eating more roughage. But the caveat is that uh, pastoral systems, if done right, can also sequester a sizable amount of carbon in the soils, mm -hmm. uh, a process called carbon sequestration. And carbon sequestration might very well be a very major sink for, uh, for greenhouse gases. How much of a sink is not really known yet. There are numbers out there that are uh, very different from one another. But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, well-run grasslands 
can have a very sizable sequestration effect. And, um, and in order to really compare and contrast um, conventional dairies on the one hand versus pastoral dairies on the other, one really would have to look not just at the sources of emissions, but also the sinks of emissions. And here pastoral systems can play an important role. So I just wanted to throw that in because it's, it's often left out and it shouldn't be left out because um, dairy systems do not just contribute, they also take out greenhouse gases. And last not least, and I think this is important, I believe that the dairy sector can reduce greenhouse gases, particularly methane, to such an extent 20% and more, that we can actually say that the reduction of the short-lived methane, the reduction of the short-lived methane will have the effect of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And whenever you do that, whenever you reduce methane, you have a cooling effect. And when you reduce methane strongly, like we do, for example, here in California, with 25% reduction in the last two years, then you have a sizable cooling effect. And that means overall, if that trend were to continue and also spread out throughout the country or the world, dairy could become carbon and climate neutral in the years to come. That, that would be, that's very interesting. Um, this is a similar question. Um, in the case of pasturing systems, could you please give us an example of technologies and regenerative practices to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so <clears throat> for example, rotational grazing. Rotational grazing can be uh, optimized and uh, designed in a way that you optimize plant growth and, um, and thus carbon uptake by plants. Um, the carbon is sucked out of the air in form of CO2. Um, it's, it's ending up in the soil. Well, first in the roots of the plants and then in the soil and locked down there. And uh, the, the rate by which carbon can be sequestered in the soil uh, drastically varies with respect to how you manage how you manage the grassland so that's one that's one avenue of increasing carbon sequestration um, based on the grazing type another way of affecting um, emissions under pastoral systems might be in the future through the use of feed additives we're not really sure yet as to how to administer those additives, whether they shall be given, administered to a cow in the form of a bolus, or whether they should be administered through water or other means. But um, various companies are now working on a number of feed additives, and I have seen and worked with some of them, that are effective in reducing methane. It's relatively easy to administer them under under, under conventional dairy systems uh, in a TMR because you top dress it or mix it in or so. But under pastoral systems, um, it's a little more harder. It's a little more difficult to administer them. But I think that uh, in five years from now, uh, we, will, we will be at a point where we can administer those um, to grazing animals as well. Okay. Um, 
when counting ruminants as our wild ruminants taken into account, they ruminate and produce a lot of methane, producing nothing. Well, yeah, there's no question. Uh, if you look at the United States, for example, uh, 150 years ago, we had as many ruminants in this country as we do today. And uh, producing as much methane as our uh, domesticated ruminant herd does today. So we had anywhere between 30 to 80 million bison and 40 million pronoun antelopes in the United States back in pre-European settlement times. These got killed off and were replaced by 90 million beef cattle and 9 million dairy cows. So if you do the math, and Alex Hurstoff from Penn State has done it and published it, you will find that the total amount of enteric methane um, by wild ruminants before the settlement versus domesticated ruminants today, that those numbers and amounts of methane were very similar. Okay, um, actually that leads to a question I had when you were talking about um, cattle number and how that, ha is there any ability to sort of back calculate and, and determine what were the emissions in let's say 1942 when we had over 25 million dairy cattle and receiving a, a different diet. It, do you have any numbers or thoughts on what the, the emissions or the footprint would have been at that point? Yes, actually uh, Jude Copper uh, did exactly that. She compared the dairy footprint from 1944, I want to say, it was either 1944 or 1950. Uh, versus that of, I believe it was 2007. And uh, it, was, it was that work that really showed that the carbon footprint at the peak time of dairy production in 1950 or so, that that carbon footprint was two-thirds higher than it is today. And the reason for that is really the much higher number of animals. So, so what you see on this slide here, this, this sharp decline of cattle numbers, came along with a sharp decline of the environmental footprint of the dairy sector. You can imagine if you go from 25 million to 9 million, then that is a drastic, a drastic impact, not just on, on the carbon footprint, but the water footprint, the air footprint, and so on. It is a drastic impact, uh, a drastic impact re reduction, I should say. So that work has been done and uh, is published, I believe, in the Journal of Dairy Science, uh, Jude Cupper, and I think the other one was Roger Cady, were the main authors of that paper. Uh, terrific. Jude's joining us in June to um, talk, so I'm looking forward to that. Perhaps it'll cover some of it. Um, when, going back to the pasture systems, and you mentioned that um, the intensive graze, grazing would be have potential for maintaining a high level of production while doing some additional carbon sequestration. Um, what sort of systems are they typically? And uh, like, I'm thinking perhaps Ireland, which has a much lower um, production per cow, but they do have really high quality forages and they do intensive grazing. Um, or is it places where there's actual irrigation to, to maintain a continuous sward? Um, and what would the water, um, the water usage effect be in those systems comparably? So, uh, yeah, of course, there are very different systems throughout the world. Uh, uh, 
in the dairy pastoral um, system. I went to Ireland uh, maybe one and a half months ago and uh, witnessed some of them. Um, there, um, of course, you don't have to do any irrigation. Um, the pasture um, is not exclusively fed, but you know, in, in certain times of the year, they also feed a little bit in addition to the pasture, but by and large, it is a pasture-fed system. Uh, not as productive as some of the tropical systems, but uh, high quality and, um, you know, systems that grow. The, the Irish dairy sector is still growing and uh, much to the distaste and dislike of the government who wants to drastically shrink cattle numbers. The Irish government wants to reduce cattle numbers, beef and dairy, by 50%, 5-0, by 50% to reduce the carbon footprint. Um, the same thing is uh, is happening in, in New Zealand, where um, you have, of course, a lot of uh, pasture-based uh, pasture systems. And um, uh, not too long ago, they had a discussion of uh, sharply cutting the livestock herds in order to reduce the country's carbon footprint. That has kind of subsided to some extent. Um, you know, now the discussion is to reduce... Um, methane to an extent of, I believe it's 20 to 40%. Um, they think that the majority of that can be achieved through techniques and technologies rather than herd size um, <clears throat> reductions. I'm sorry, I'm waffling on here and um, I've just noticed that I've, I'm kind of straying a little bit from the, the actual question. Could you please, um, could you please repeat the question really quickly? Um, actually, it was it was more um, how would so what particular grazing system that would have better sequestration would work and and if that's one where it requires additional irrigation, how do you weigh the uh, yeah. mm -hmm. the water <laughs> balance? Yeah, so um, in most parts of the world, um, in Ireland, in New Zealand, water is not an issue. They they have plenty of rainfall. Uh, to fulfill the water needs. Um, in those areas where you have to irrigate, um, the water footprint would be, would be problematic simply because um, it would be in, in, many, in many places in competition to other uh, water use uh, uh, purposes. I mean, if you look at, uh, at, at the United States, even here, 5% uh, of all water withdrawals in the United States go into the dairy sector. Now, this is not something that's often talked about, but it's actually one of the main environmental issues. One of the main environmental issues of the dairy sector is water withdrawal. And the vast majority of that water goes not into the cows directly, but goes into growing the feed. Um, so whether it's uh, the pasture systems or the normal conventional systems, uh, water use is a major issue. Uh, because the dairy sector just needs a lot of it. So um, I don't know what to say, but this will always be uh, one of the major challenges, one that is currently uh, more of the back burner uh, because everybody is talking about carbon and you know, climate change impacts. Mm -hmm. um, coming back to some questions in the chat window, and I am not certain of one abbreviation, I apologize. So the IPCC 2014 or fifth assessment increased GWP, and I'm not sure what GWP is, um, 
Do you know, Frank? So the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel yes. for Climate Change. And, yeah, GWP, um, and GWP stands for Global Warming Potential. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. I'll finish the question now. I just wanted to make sure I got that correct. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. The global warming potential of methane 230 and nitrous oxide to 265, how much, if any, um, does that affect the lifespan of meth uh, methane and nitrous oxide? How, how did they affect that, I think? Um, yes, yeah, so those numbers, they change frequently and uh, went from 25 to 28 uh, for methane and, and it changed for nitrous oxide. Um, it's actually quite inconsequential. Whether it's 25 or 28 or 30 for methane, it doesn't really matter. What we know is that methane is a potent greenhouse gas, one that we try to curb. That's not controversial, okay? That, that is clear. What is not so clear in the eyes of some, it seems, is the fact that methane is not just produced, but also destroyed. This is actually a critical a critical aspect because when you look at methane, don't just look at the concentration in the atmosphere, but, and this is now important, look at the rate of change, the rate of change. Because if you produce a hundred units, but um, at any given time, 98 units are destroyed, well then that's obviously a very important piece of information you must have in order to, cur to correctly address methane budgets. And that's exactly where we are. We are producing globally through all sources, 560 teragrams and 550 teragrams are destroyed. So the net is 10 and not 560. So whether it, the global warming potential of methane is 25 or 28 or 30 is really inconsequential. But whether or not the short lifetime of methane is considered is paramount in the discussion. And what we need to focus on is the rate of change for methane. If it was, um, you know, if you compare 2000, the year 2000 to 2010 to 2020, then what really matters is, did methane stay constant during that time? Did it go up? Did it go down from the dairy sector, from the beef sector? If it was constant, if it was constant, then that means we did not add additional new carbon to the atmosphere. That means we did not add additional warming. If it increased, then we have a problem because then we have more of a potent climate pollutant in the atmosphere. But in the United States, we have actually decreased methane from the livestock sector, from dairy and beef. And that means that we have a net cooling effect now think about what that means, what I just said, a cooling effect caused by these sectors. Not just do we not add additional warming to the atmosphere, but if we reduce methane, we induce cooling. And if you don't believe me, you might want to look into literature by Miles Allen, A-L-L-E-N, from Oxford University, one of the main authors of the IPCC, who is now saying exactly what I just told you that methane needs to be considered very, very differently compared to nitrous oxide and CO2, the so-called long-lived climate pollutants. And the reason for this is that methane has this short lifetime. And 
because of the short lifetime, it's critically to understand what increases of methane will do, what decreases will do, and what it means for methane to stay stagnant. Okay, I have a, I have a couple related questions to that. So if, we've de if the United States has decreased methane emissions, and, and I'm going to maybe guess that Europe has as well, how are other areas of the world doing with that? Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, in much of the developing world, methane is going up. And the reason, and I'm talking about the livestock sector here, of course, mm -hmm. and the reason is, and the reason for this increase is that the demand for beef and dairy is going up. And the increase in demand for beef and dairy is satisfied in most of the developing and emerging part of the world by increasing livestock herds. So cattle herds are growing throughout the world and growing herds mean growing methane. And that's not good. We should grow the supply of dairy and beef, not via increasing herd sizes, but via increasing efficiencies. So if you are with a company that has the capacity to build higher, better efficiencies, uh, particularly the developing world and emerging countries are in dire need of that. They are in dire need of that. Now I have one example for you that's not cattle related, it's pig related. And it stems from the time before, the time before the African swine fever hit China. The Chinese are producing half of the world's pigs, one billion per year, one billion pigs. But of that one billion, 40%, four zero, 400 million die pre-weaning and never make it to the market. And that is China. China is so uh, efficient already and so uh, modern in many respects. If, if such numbers can be observed in a country like China, you can imagine what India looks like or African countries where it's much worse. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know how we, we let's see. I'm trying to see if um, Mike Hutchins says in U.S. dairy, I think the methane challenge is lost energy, 6% that cannot be used for maintenance, milk, and other factors. Um, I have a question, and this may be Mike or one of our nutritionists. Um, Frank, if you're not uh, able to answer this question well, um, how does a feed like distiller's grain from corn affect the methane emissions from dairy livestock? Um, does that reduce enteric emissions? And um, go ahead. So I don't really know, and I don't know if it's known. What I do know is that uh, that diets high in distillers grains are uh, high in nitrogen and lead to um, to more ammonia as a result. What it does to methane, I don't really know. If you compare a diet high in distillers grains versus one uh, that has other components in it, um, I'm I'm not sure what it does to methane. I have not seen related data. Okay, and I suspect that that actually can be managed just by making sure that it's a well-balanced diet um, with high distillers grains, that it's complemented with the other feeds. Um, yeah, I, I would think so, but I don't really know. I have not seen data and I have not studied it myself. Yes. Okay. Um, a question. So, and this, this is the, the 
encouragement or, or meatless Mondays and everybody going vegetarian or vegan is, is impractical. Um, I wonder what, is there any proposal of what would happen with all of the cows? What would, do they think just poof, they will disappear and no longer emit um, any greenhouse gases or are they going to roam free? No, no, no. They're very clear. <laughs> they're very clear about that. They are clear that, those animals should all be, um, you know, euthanized, and and be, we'd be done with them. Um, if you look at what the same organizations do with um, with dogs and cats that are housed in shelters, um, they are they are they are euthanized. And um, if you ask me, the vast majority of the people who make all that stink, they they don't really care much about the animals themselves. Um, they are activists that really cannot be argued with because they are not receptive to any argument. Um, they have such strong stance that it's their way or the highway. And um, um, the so-called rewildering concept is one that you sometimes hear. You hear it even from places like the UK, the United Kingdom government, where they say we should take a third or so of our agricultural land and convert it into forests and or into wilderness and allow a rewildering. Um, that is a serious concept that the UK government is thinking of. Uh, the, uh, the Dutch government has had some, some trials of rewildering, of taking livestock and rewildering it. And they, they failed so drastically because those poor animals did not know what to eat, they were running around, and many of them suffered. Uh, many of them suffered from from hunger and died. Um, these things are published, and and you will find them if you dig a little bit. It's called rewildering projects. Um, it's a disaster. It's it's uh, inhumane uh, to treat anyone like that. And um, you know, but I also have to tell you this: we're now going through this Corona crisis. And I think that one of the one of the outcomes of the Corona crisis will be that people will think about food differently. When they go into the supermarket right now and they see what's flying out of the shelves, it's animal source foods, it's eggs, it's milk, it's meat. Yesterday I was in the supermarket and I was told that I that the eggs are rationed. Okay, I live in Davis, California, in the agricultural heartland of this country, and I can only get so and so many eggs now and so and so many gallons of milk. Because it's, because it's rationed, because there's such a high demand for it. Um, the same is true for meat and so on. And the plant-based alternatives go into the supermarket and see what they do in this crisis situation. They are sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and nobody buys them. So I think this corona crisis will change the way we view agriculture. And I hope it will, because it must. Because what's happening right now with agriculture and the criticism agriculture receives is absolutely unwarranted and it is wrong the way we treat farmers in this country and throughout the world it is just unacceptable you know in my opinion there are two really important sectors of society the one providing health and the one providing food while the health sector is always highly regarded the food sector is treated in an unfair way uh, like dirt and that's just not acceptable to me I think sadly, everyone listening to this would agree with you. And it's you know, the term preaching to the choir. Um, I was curious, uh, given the press that has been 
attended to the decrease in or the in, in, improvement in air quality um, in China and in places that have gone into um, shelter at home type situations, I wondered if that would cause an increased scrutiny and criticism of agriculture in terms of um, offering pollutants or in terms of emissions. Yeah, that's a very valid question. Um, and many people are asking that question. So it is true that um, certain pollutants are going down in regions such as northern Italy or parts of China. And the reason for that, for that decrease is, of course, that the corona response has been to shut down societies. I mean, shut down societies. No cars, no trucks, no trains, planes, ships, and so on are traveling, or very few, relatively speaking. And that means we are burning so much fewer fossil fuels right now, globally. And if you burn fewer fossil fuels, then the emissions associated with that go down. And these are things such as NO2, that's oxides of nitrogen. That's not to be confused with N2O, nitrous oxide. The NO2 from combustion of uh, uh, fossil fuels and the carbon monoxide and uh, the volatile organic compounds, these are the gases that are going down right now throughout the world. The gases associated with animal agriculture or with agriculture overall, such as ammonia or methane or nitrous oxide, are different. Comparing those emissions that are going, current, that are going down currently with those from agriculture is like comparing apples to oranges. These are not the same emissions that are going down, not the same gases. These are different gases. And overall, the emissions that are normally associated with agriculture are not going down currently. They are staying the same because agriculture is not on a you know, stay home safe kind of regimen, but we are doing everything we have been doing before uh, at the same rate or higher rate. So... Um, uh, it is important to know that the emissions that are currently going down are not those associated with agriculture. It's a different uh, kind of worms. Right, right. But unfortunately, um, knowledge has never gotten in the way of, um, or facts have never gotten in the way of, of what people will opine. Um, well, I will throw my weight behind it and I will uh, excellent. educate the public as much as I can to make them understand these are not the same emissions. These are different emissions that are associated with the burning of fossil fuel versus uh, the production of food. Well, plus, and I, oh, sorry. Plus, plus, we need food. I, it sounds trivial to say that, but go into the supermarket right now and see how many food items that you normally uh, were able to get no problems are now in short supply or missing. I think people will get a different appreciation of food, where the food comes from, how the food is produced in the years to come, because they will experience some food insecurity. Well, I th and I think that in real realistically, we do need to, to be aware and, and make steps to make sure that we're doing the best that we can as an industry agriculture. I'm a little concerned that when people come out of quarantine, it'll be like, throw out all the rules and and we will be in a worse position position climatologically once um we take the brakes off everything that 
is is be, has shut down. Well, there's no question about that. So the reductions of greenhouse gases, for example, the reductions of pollutants that we see currently will be more than offset by the increase in activity after the crisis is over. People will go bananas after this is over. They will go travel, they will go party, they will uh, consume and so forth. There's no question that the reductions of emissions that we see currently will be more than offset in the in the time following the crisis. Okay, um, some questions. The California low carbon fuel standard gives a lot of methane avoidance cred credits for biogas pathways from dairy manure of around negative three gram, grams carbon dioxide equivalent per megajoule. Is this fair? What was the last part? Is this is this fair? Um, yes, I, you can. I think you can see that in the chat window. Oh yeah, I, I, I can't see it right now. But, it but, well. Okay, so um, so first of all, the reason why this is being done is because now I see it. Um, so the reason. So let me first tell you what this means to everybody who is not. Um, familiar with this. So there's a new gold rush in California. And I'm not exaggerating. It is, it is a new gold rush. Um, and it, it is um, a incentive program for farmers or developers to build digesters, anaerobic digesters on dairies. Normally they look uh, like covered lagoons and not like the typical tanks that you oftentimes see. So these covered lagoons they trap the biogas, and while in the past that biogas was burned and made into power, now the biogas is converted into renewable natural gas, sold off to vehicle fleets, and now semi-trucks are using this RNG, renewable natural gas, instead of diesel. And in order to... Um, support that. There are different types of credits paid to those operating the digesters. And uh, the payments are massive. They are very high. And as a result, this technology is very lucrative and very, um, very attractive. So producing biogas right now and converting it into renewable natural gas uh, has a huge financial um, advantage to those people implementing the technology. Um, dairy biogas has the highest credit associated with it from all renewable sources. And the reason is that you first prevent emissions from the lagoons going up, that's the one. And secondly, you are now replacing diesel emissions with the renewable natural gas emissions, which are much lower in their emission profile. So you have a double, a double whammy that is highly incentivized by our legislature and, um, and, and the monetary um, uh, compensation is enormous. I mean, you can really uh, call that a new gold rush. Is it fair? I think it's fair. And I think it's a great opportunity for the dairy industry to monetize um, you know, from this. Okay, thanks. Um, let's see. And Frank, I'm going to just... Elena, unless you have some questions, I'm going to have the next question I ask be my last. I have some more from Brazil, but we can ask those tonight. I, I don't want to over 
over overburden you with a long Q and A period this morning. Um, so my question is: Do you see? Um, okay, Elena does not have more questions. Do you see the option of supplying insect protein to ruminants as a soy substitute? Um, I don't really know. I am not really a uh, nutritionist per se uh, who understands the nutrition, the nutrient profile of uh, of insects and how that compares. Um, I don't want to give you the wrong answer, and so I just pass on that one. Okay. Uh, maybe we will get get somebody out there to weigh in or um, while, while they're contemplating whether they want to answer or give their opinion or not. I have one last question because this kind of um, was interesting to me. This is again from Brazil, very interesting data on vegans. They have no impact on greenhouse gas, but they can cause unemployment. If they are effective in reducing cow numbers and dairy farmers, there are about a billion people on earth. Could you comment more on the effect of diet on climate? How is the production of intestinal methane in a vegan compared to a human omnivore? Can humans be a significant source of enteric methane to the atmosphere? Yeah, the answer to that is, uh, is very clear and it's a no. Okay. Um, I know that that is a question that moves many. <laughs> <laughs> it moves many literally, but uh, the amount of flatulence from humans is very little. Okay, it's very little. Uh, even the more gassy ones of us uh, produce, uh, with respect to total yields, such a minuscule amount that uh, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. It certainly does not compare uh, with any of the the major producers. And so, even if we were all to turn one diet uh, versus the other, uh, and diets that are particularly prone to uh, to flatulence, it would not make a big difference. Okay, so despite what you think of your new office mate and, and their habits, <laughs> this is not truly a, a, a situation. Yeah, no, I mean, at least not uh, scientifically supported. Uh, I mean, you can, run, you can run with it and you can try to, uh, to sell it as, uh, as a major point, but it's not scientifically supported. There, there are, there are, by the way, publications that compare uh, methane from various uh, animals, including humans. Okay, including humans. I would have to dig it out, but uh, that question has been addressed um, uh, several times. Okay. Um, actually, I promised you the last question, but I have one more that I'm, I'm curious about. I was um, in Texas and got to listen to Mary Beth Hall in the, the discussion of if we all, if we turned all of the cropland that is now supporting um, animal agriculture into cropland for mm -hmm. used in vegetarians, um, how much of the planet could that support? And, and she admitted that, that her, um, their study was very, very quick and not a lot of um, not a lot of time was spent on determining whether the land that they're they're picking actually could be converted to um, food production for humans. What um, do you have any comments on that? Yeah. So, <clears throat> of all agricultural land in the world, and also uh, that that number or that comparison is true for the United States as well. Of all agricultural land in the world, approximately seventy percent seven zero is marginal land and cannot really be converted into cropland. 
and this marginal land is uh, <clears throat> this marginal land is not suitable for crop production because there's not enough water or the soil is not good enough. So that's 70%. Um, the call by some of our vegan friends to convert all agricultural land into crop producing land is hence one that is illogical because um, the 30% of agricultural land that is cropland right now could be expanded, ex extended and there could be an expansion, but uh, it is a relatively minor one, maybe another 10%. The rest of agricultural land can only be utilized by ruminant livestock because of their unique ability to, to convert cellulose into, as we all know, meat and milk and so forth. So without ruminant livestock, we could not make use of almost 70% of all agricultural land. I don't know if these people are aware of what they are saying. They obviously, they might be well-meaning, but they are certainly ill-informed as to what the potency or potential is of marginal lands to be converted to anything other than marginal lands. Okay, thank you. Um, I think unless I have more questions coming in from the audience that will let you go for this morning, Okay. Hi, everybody. Paula and Frank, if you would like to unmute your mics and say hello. Marcelo joined us earlier, but he has since left the building. So um, he said he had no questions to ask. So go ahead. Hi. Hi, I'm here. We have okay. a lot. We had a lot of trouble with the with the slides today, but uh, we, we have uh, one question by now. May, may I... Yes, Paula, if you would like to go, I have, um, I'm waiting for questions to come into my chat window, but I also have some questions from this morning left to okay. ask too. Okay, I, I will ask then. Okay, okay. thank you very much, uh, Dr. Medluener. It was a, a great uh, presentation. We learned a lot. Um, the first question is from Patricio. Why does the carbon dioxide emission index in South America is joined with the Central America index in the presentation? Uh, on one of the slides, you mean on the on the one for for dairy greenhouse gases? I I think so. In one one of the slides. Oh, would you Would you um, like me to move to that slide? Yeah, that would be great. Um, so in general, um, I would not be able to give you an answer, a satisfying answer to that, because this slide is from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome, the FAO. And uh, the way that they have uh, organized this slide is, um, is not clear to me. So as you can see here, um, there, there are groups such as West Asia and Northern Africa. That's one group. Makes even less sense. Um, sub Sub-Saharan Africa is another one and so on. Uh, why they have bundled it that way, I cannot tell you. I, I do not know. Okay, okay, Paula, would you like me to ask some questions now? Yes, go on. Okay. All right. Um, let's see, my first question is, despite the public perception about agriculture being a major con contribution of greenhouse emissions, 
and global warming, what are the major areas of opportunity we can still capitalize on dairy production to further increase our efficiency? Um, so, I mean, for the last, I don't know how many decades, people always thought, oh, well, we're already so efficient, there's hardly any room to grow. Um, and we were always wrong because there always was more room to grow. Um, we now have a situation, for example, here in North America, where we produce 23,000 pounds or so of milk, so over 10 tons per year. Um, and if you look around the world and, um, and what the variability is, how many areas there are where dairy production is still dismal, I mean, really dismal, um, I think we have a lot of room to grow. Um, we have learned lessons over time. So, for example, here in the United States, if you look at uh, milk production and components and so on over time, uh, you will see a huge development that has occurred. And we know how to make that happen. Uh, we know how nutritionally or how from a genetics or from a veterinary perspective, we can make changes and improvements. And I think we need to uh, apply that knowledge now globally um, across the world. Okay, um, thank, thank you. Uh, let's see, uh, the question regarding this slide that we're showing, and um, this is from a listener who says, this slide is not considering the CO2 sink, right? It's just the emissions? Correct, yeah, this is not, uh, this is not the sink. So this does not include sequestration, let's say. That's correct. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm gonna ask another one, Paula, and then give you an opportunity if you would like to, or I'll just um, keep, keep going with questions because I have a few. Um, the next one is, first of all, thank you for the presentation. Where do you see manure management in the next 10 years to combat nitrous oxide formed from ammonia emissions? So, uh... There are really important uh, advances with respect to nitrogen, respect manure management, but also with respect to uh, fertilizer use application. Okay. Um, um, Frank, in both cases, Frank, we see. Uh, Frank, yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, could you could you start over? We lost you briefly, and I wanted to um, want you to. Oh, just I see. Over. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, there are there are massive um, opportunities for improvement, both on the manure side and on the fertilizer side, with respect to use of nitrogen in a way that is more targeted. So uh, in both cases, whether we apply organic manure or synthetic fertilizers, we must do this uh, at agronomic rates. And um, using best agronomic practices, really, oftentimes that's not the case. And when it's not the case, when we overapply fertilizer in the form of, let's say, manure, uh, at times when the plants can't take it on, then we have massive losses. And this is actually a much bigger issue than, uh, than methane. It's not as sexy an issue, but I tell you, it's a massive issue. And uh, there's a lot of room to grow. Uh, obviously, we can also make large changes with respect to how we treat manure. Um, the use of anaerobic digesters is something that's uh, growing in popula uh, popularity. 
uh, has many advantages, for example, on the methane side, but the disadvantage is that the use of an anaerobic digester produces more ammonia. What comes out of the anaerobic digester, the effluent, is very high in ammonia. So we need to really think about how can we better deal with the ammonia-containing, high ammonia-containing effluent coming out of a digester so that the reactive nitrogen doesn't uh, destroy the advantages we have seen um, on the one side, on the methane front, with, uh, with, with high reactive nitrogen emissions. Um, how would, so I, yeah, the, the use of anaerobic digesters, how have some of the new applications of manure into fields affected those problems, like um, the direct injection and plowing? Uh, direct injection has a very, uh, a very good impact because you now get the material in the ground and uh, you prevent volatilization of uh, reactive nitrogen compounds. And so that's, that's very positive. Uh, we, see, we see great progress in that field. So um, the question really is, um, do people know when to apply and how much to apply? Um, do people have enough land available at the time that they need it? Um, you know, we, we can do a better job, I would say, overall in animal agriculture in applying nitrogen and other uh, nutrients at agronomic rates in a way that minimizes emissions. Yes, excellent. Um, so I have, Paula has a question that sort of addresses this, but um, I think we'll hear a little bit of frustration from our audience who is, is experiencing that, yes, we're watching this presentation and we're understanding it. Um, but this one is, it's a tremendous presentation and data, but how do we get this information to the general public? I know you're trying very hard. Um, and this, this speaker says, my, my kids want to go vegan and they hear lectures about um, and, and, he, and he hears lectures all the time about how bad animal agriculture is. How do we help this poor man? Well, people in animal agriculture are really far, far removed from discussing and presenting what they know with the public. Uh, overall, people in agriculture are private people. They're conservative people. They don't really want to engage with the public. Um, I might have been that way myself for the longest time, and about a year ago, I stopped that, and I decided I do need to do my share in communicating better, and I engaged in social media. I now have a Twitter account, as you know, GHG Guru is my handle, and I have about 3 million impressions a month, so 3 million interactions on my Twitter account alone a month, and I find it very... Um, I find it a very positive part of my professional life now to engage with a growingly interested public uh, that is oftentimes misled. I find that the people who are anti-animal agriculture are very good, very well-versed uh, in their communication skills. And I also find that people in agriculture are by and large not. And that needs to change. It must change uh, because it's no longer just a question of producing food efficiently and uh, the way that we know is best. But um, if we don't learn how to talk about it, uh, and I don't mean PR, I mean really in an educational way, then, uh, then this whole fight 
you know, as you might call it, uh, is already lost from the start. And so uh, it's everybody's job. And don't think that it's people like Frank who can do this alone. It's everybody's job to uh, really engage with a growingly interested public and seeing this as an opportunity and not just as a challenge. Many 20-year-olds today ask, where does my food come from? How is it produced? Is it true that there are antibiotics in the milk? Is it true that there's pus in the milk and so on? They ask these questions, and if you, the expert, if you are not willing to answer them, they will keep asking, and sooner or later, someone within PETA, HSUS or so, will gladly answer them for you. Yes, yes. I mean, we, um, a couple personal experiences, we, I made cheese and had to go do sampling at a lot of supermarkets, and people just don't know. And some honestly want to learn. Some are closed and aren't willing to learn. Um, Lynn Gilbert, who does our, our marketing on our Facebook page, we discovered just how closely you're followed by a bunch of people who don't want to learn when we um, posted about the webinar this week. It was interesting. Um, Paula, would you like to ask some questions? I know you have quite a few ready. Yes, I would like. Okay. Uh, okay, the, the one from Gonzalo, considering high production systems uh, would produce less methane, how could we start generating strategies to reduce methane production in grazing systems, especially in Central America? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just, like, um, just like conventional dairy systems have a great variability with respect to uh, overall emissions, so do grazing systems. Uh, there are rotational grazing systems, for example, where um, just because, um, you know, uh, this rotational scheduling is used, um, much more carbon can be sequestered. So there are rotational systems that actually can take more carbon out of the air than they put into the air. There are rotational systems that are net carbon sinks. And uh, a couple of studies have been done showing it, and uh, they actually have, should have been published already. Um, but I don't think that the dairy sector has really learned to appreciate what that really means. Uh, I do believe that there are real opportunities for the dairy sector to become carbon and climate neutral. And that's true, for, uh, that's true, true for conventional, and it is true for for grazing systems. Uh, and the reason for this is that on the one hand, um, we have to do the accounting correctly. Methane is not just produced, methane is also consumed almost at equal rates as I alluded to during my talk. But in addition to that, we, have, we are currently not really accounting for the sequestration that occurs on grasslands, and we should, because that is actually a massive sector. Just so you know, I know you asked me about Central America. I don't have Central American numbers, but what I'm saying here is true globally. Uh, imagine this, in the United States and globally, in the United States and globally, the agencies responsible for quantifying these things, in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency, and globally, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC, have published that agriculture and forestry, these two sectors, 
destroy and sequester more carbon than they emit. In other words, while the world always talks about how much greenhouse gases are emitted from agriculture and, and other sectors, they are not reporting how much carbon is sequestered. Yet it should be because we are actually exceeding what we are emitting uh, with, respect, with respect to uh, the carbon that we are sequestering. In the United States, we are emitting in agriculture and forestry 550, and we are destroying, sequestering 720. So a significant number more is taken out of the air than put into the air by agriculture and forestry. Uh, again, globally, the same is true. The IPCC published a, uh, a report last summer on land use changes, and that report also stated that globally, the only two sectors that are considered a piggy bank for carbon are agriculture and forestry. And they had the numbers in their report showing exactly uh, how much, uh, you know, what the numbers are. And, uh, and they are impressive. So grassland in particular has a, an important function here. And grassland can actually, in many cases, take out more carbon than forests do take out more carbon out of the air than forests do uh, because of, um, of the fact that oftentimes forests, once they are uh, cut off, uh, you know, the question always becomes what happens to those trees once they have been cut off? Do they, do they just burn or how do we use that wood? You know, that really determines as to uh, how carbon effective forestry is versus grass, grassland use. I can tell you grassland use is a very effective way for carbon uh, mitigation. Okay. May I go on, Marianne? Yes, Paula, keep going. I, I can ask more when you need to go back to translating. Okay. Uh, here is a question from Alejandro. Do you recommend some tool to quantify emissions in cattle and milk production validated with IPCC standards? The IPCC is really not the body that would have the methodology that you're looking for. Um, and that's simply because they are not the experts in this field. The experts in the field are at the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization. Here I was um, chairman of a FAO committee called LEAP, L-E-A-P. It stands for Livestock Environmental Assessment and Performance Partnership. And this LEAP partnership produced guidelines on how to quantify climate impacts, air impacts, water impacts from livestock, poultry, and feed. So if you Google FAO, and then LEAP, L-E-A-P, then you will find detailed guidelines on how to do an assessment of the environmental footprint of livestock. And these are the guidelines I would recommend to you. Great. Uh, we have a second question from Alejandro. Uh, it, uh, you mentioned something uh, recently, but uh, it's more specific. He says uh, he doesn't understand why, if it is that clear that cattle are not responsible of the climate change, globally, cat cattle are the guilty guys. Is it, uh, do you think it is a marketing thing? So when you say, when it's that clear, so 
it is not generally that clear. It is that clear to people um, who do what I do, who look into the cycling of carbon in the livestock system, who do look into the accounting of, uh, let's say, short-lived climate pollutants such as methane. Uh, to those people, it's clear. Um, to many of the others, it's not clear. And to them, uh, whoever emits methane is the bad guy. Uh, many of the people who toot this methane story and who um, criticize beef and dairy for carbon emissions and therefore global warming uh, are the same who in the past uh, were activists on the animal rights front, on the animal welfare front and so on. They have one thing that they really want to achieve and this is they want to end animal agriculture and they want to do this by all means. And they found that the animal rights, animal welfare angle didn't work, at least not the way they intended, not strong enough. And so they did find that the climate discussion uh, strikes a, uh, a note in many people, particularly younger people. And so they decided that this is the angle of attack. And people in agriculture for the longest time said, you know, we don't believe in climate change. And if climate change happens, agriculture has nothing to do with it. And uh, that was a strategic mistake uh, by people in agriculture because climate change does happen and agriculture has a contribution. However, that contribution is very small compared to that by other sectors. So instead of saying, you know, we don't believe in this and leave us alone, we should have said, we understand this is an important societal issue we understand that we have contributions to it. We have quantified them. These quantifications have been published and we have pledged further reductions. And here's what they are. Because we are the only sector that I know of that really has done quantification efforts the way we, we did and, um, and who is really a sector that has made further pledges for reduction. And these reductions in many parts of the world are already massive. So I think that we have to totally change our, our game plan and, um, and really become, become more, um, more active, really, in, um, in, in, uh, in the discourse, in the discussion, and, um, and, uh, and become more active. Okay, great. And in line with this, Pedro wants to know why information in about greenhouse gas emissions is so changed comparing animals with the rest. Why don't we compare total amounts and not by individual? Total amounts of, um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Why don't we compare total amounts? Um, because normally that's what is being done. Uh, people do compare total amounts of greenhouse gases, unfortunately. Um, so for example, uh, the different agencies compare different sectors of society. They compare power production and use and transportation uh, with other industries, with agriculture and so forth. And I showed one slide uh, for the United States. Um, the problem is all greenhouse gases emitted by these individual sectors are normalized to so-called CO2 equivalent units. CO2E. And the CO2E, and that's really critical now, the CO2 equivalents are not a means 
by which we can determine the warming impact of that sector. So if you take methane, and uh, let's say methane from the dairy sector in the country where you reside, and you simply calculate the global warming potential, GWP100, then this GWP100 will not tell you how much warming your global warming your industry contributes to, but it will only um, tell you what the CO2 equivalent amount is of that methane. And um, what it doesn't do is it doesn't describe it doesn't describe the rate of change of methane, how methane changes uh, from one decade to the next. And that's really critical because if methane goes up, we have a problem. We have a serious warming problem. If methane from your livestock stays stagnant, then that livestock you have does not contribute to additional carbon and hence that methane does not just, uh, contribute to additional warming. If you, however, manage to reduce methane in your country, then this will induce a process called global cooling. You are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, leading to a cooling effect. And this is why this discussion about GWP star is so important. This discussion about looking at methane and its rate of change over time is really critically important. And it will be, in my opinion, the new matrix in the years to come. Paula, shall I ask a few? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, let's see. So this was, I'm going to go to this next slide that I can see in our lineup. Um, there was a question about this. Um, could you comment more on the difference between dairy products as a source of greenhouse gas? Based on environmental issues, is there a chance for humans to rely more on fluid milk than on cheese and other products as a food source? I don't think I'm the right person to ask that question. Uh, I'm just not trained in this field uh, of, you know, what product line is better for human nutrition. And, and that's how I, how I hear your question. Um, you know, you can see this right now um, where our system here throughout the world is really in shock because of this coronavirus. Uh, where all of a sudden all schools are closed and all restaurants are closed. And all of a sudden there is no market for, for fluid milk. And so from one day to another, uh, states like Wisconsin, which produce a lot of fluid milk, um, don't have a place for that milk to go. And those places in the country and throughout the world that are producing powder or producing cheese, they can still go because that product will be uh, usable for a much longer period of time. So uh, there are many reasons as to why somebody would choose going one route over the other. Um, but I'm not the right person to understand why someone would chose uh, one avenue, let's say fluid milk, over another one being cheese or, uh, or powder or so. Okay, thank you. Um, question, do, um, has anyone calculated the impact of reducing cow size so that it reduces the maintenance requirement on global warming, assuming that the milk yield per cow could be simultaneously maintained or increased? 
Um, so I assume that you mean frame size that cows, uh, you know, get smaller again. And um, I have seen research uh, comparing breeds, uh, let's say Holstein versus jerseys, um, because that's relatively easy to do. And the jerseys were more efficient and they had a lower carbon footprint per unit of fat protein corrected milk produced. Um, overall, getting a smaller cow, let's say a smaller Holstein, um, you know, might have, might have advantageous effects. Um, and uh, we would all anticipate that, I guess. Everybody here on the, on the phone would anticipate that. Uh, I have to tell you overall, while this area here is, of course, my area, the environmental footprint of, of, of livestock and uh, the carbon footprints and so on, but overall, I can tell you that uh, this corona shock here has taught me one thing, and that is um, from one day to another, something like a virus can just change everything. I mean, just change everything. I believe that something that moved the world two months ago, which was the carbon footprint of what we eat and how we eat and how much we eat and all of that, from one month to another, uh, is being obliterated, obliterated, and uh, will become. I don't think that this will be a, a top, a top level discussion item in the real. This entire discussion for a long time to come. People will be much more interested in how can we make sure that we produce enough food, and how can we make sure that we produce the food that people want. And if you go into the supermarkets right now check out what kind of food items are demanded the most. Uh, I just went shopping this morning and I could not believe it. In a supermarket in California, United States, I found that the eggs were rationed. I was only allowed to buy a certain number of eggs. I was only amount, uh, allowed to buy a certain amount of milk. And the reason was that the eggs and the milk and the meat was flying off the shelves. And what was tooted last, last year as being the new thing, the plant-based alternatives to meat, they are sitting in the shelves and nobody touches them. So um, I, I, see, I see some big changes happening and I think they will happen to our world as well. Yes, and I think it's going to take us a while to get back to this. And what I'm worried about is that it will come back um, with a, a vengeance that we'll, we'll find that we just go so far to the other side in terms of taking off and worrying about the environment that when we finally wake up and look at it, it's going to be in a worse situation than it, than it potentially could have been if we hadn't been distracted. We're like crows, bright, shiny things. Yeah, I have to tell you that um, I think that this this obsession about the environmental footprint of our food choices um, was a means by some to foster their product lines, their alternative product lines. It was a means by others, by some activists, to use a topic to discourage the use of animal source foods. And it was an outcome of people in animal agriculture uh, being asleep behind the wheel and not taking this seriously. Uh, I hope that everybody is waking up to this because um, you can see how fast things can derail. They can derail really fast. People in agriculture have to wake up to them not being, you know, they are vulnerable. Agriculture is vulnerable and it needs to understand um, 
to engage better with society. Yes, yes. Um, oh my golly, there was something that occurred to me to ask you, but I'll move to a, a um, question from Paula, if you would like to ask some. Okay. Um, this is a question from Celeste. What is your opinion about the evaluation tools of sustainability, like RISE, SAFA? Can those tools help with the diagnosis of the situation? Do they help with system transformation? Uh, I am not familiar with these particular tools. Um, so I can't really comment on those. But um, what I can tell you is oftentimes people uh, view sustainability as environmental sustainability. And that's not how I view sustainability. I think, I think that there are five main pillars of sustain, uh, sustainability. And uh, in these times right now, they are particularly critical to know. One of the five is environmental quality, and that includes air, water, and climate. A second pillar is animal welfare, a very important one, animal welfare. Particularly in the Western world, in Europe and the Americas, uh, animal welfare is considered a very important topic. The third, the third one is food safety, making sure that we don't have pathogens in the food or, you know, you know, any kind of pathogens, of course, like salmonella, E. coli, and so on. Then the fourth one is the issue of workers getting a qualified workforce and retaining that workforce is extremely important. If you ask anybody here in the United States, farmers, what is most important to them among all sustainability areas, they will tell you workers. And then the number five, of course, is financial viability. So environmental quality is one of the five. Then it's animal welfare, then it's food safety, it's attracting and retaining workers and financial viability. Any sustainability evaluation tool that does not include all five of these pillars, I would not take too seriously. S environmental sustainability is one of several aspects of sustainability. Great, thank you. Uh, may I go on, Marianne? Yes, Paula, I have just a couple more, but go ahead. Okay, I have one more. Okay. Uh, uh, Juan uh, is asking, how do biofuels contribute to greenhouse effect? Um, so biofuels, let's say if you, if you look into ethanol, for example, ethanol um, is a is of course a, a biofuel produced from corn. Um, if you compare ethanol production and use versus the use of fossil fuels directly, you'll find that ethanol might have a larger, not a smaller, but a larger environmental footprint. Um, it's not true that uh, biofuels have a lower environmental footprint just because of the name biofuel or because they are associated with agriculture. Oftentimes, they have a sizable, a sizable environmental footprint. Um, I'm more excited about, for example, uh, this new trend of using anaerobic digesters, such as covered lagoons on dairies, uh, where farmers are now producing biogas because they are putting a cover over their lagoon. They're producing biogas 
but then they don't burn the biogas as um, you know to produce power, but they use the biogas to make renewable natural gas (RNG), and this renewable natural gas is then sold to vehicle fleets, so that semi trucks, big trucks, can instead of burning diesel, burn renewable natural gas. And the reason why I'm excited about it is because a state like the one I'm living in here, California, has incentivized the use of RNG to an extent where this is the new gold rush in the state of California. Farmers and developers for anaerobic digesters are jumping at the bit of producing covered lagoons to produce renewable natural gas. And that renewable natural gas uh, receives enormous credits. So a lot of money will be made by using biogas and making it into fuel for vehicles. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say this is a new gold rush that we are experiencing here. And I'm quite excited about that. Terrific. You, Paula, do you have any more questions? Not by now. Okay, thanks. No, that, that does sound very interesting. Um, National Geographic, I don't know if you're a subscriber, Frank, but um, this past um, version or this, this past, past month that just came talked about the same sort of things. And interestingly enough, it did not discuss agriculture much at all. It mostly focused on the transportation issues and creating... Um, alternative sources of fuel. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you this is a huge deal. Uh, two years ago, the legislature here in California um, uh, released a new law called SB 1383. And this new law mandates a 40% reduction, for zero, 40% reduction of methane to be, to be achieved by the year 2030 a 40% reduction of methane. Now, all of our farmers here scratched their heads and wondered if people had lost their minds in Sacramento, in our capital, um, and thought this is never possible. Um, but then something really remarkable happened. The legislature decided to enforce that new law, not by putting out rules and regulations and fine people who don't comply, but instead, they decided to incentivize the reduction of methane through financial means. So the legislature put in half a billion dollars, that's $500 million, in financial incentives so that farmers could afford the purchase of technologies to reduce methane. And so the goal is to, to, to reduce methane by 40% by the year 2030. What shall I tell you, after the first two years, we already achieved a 25% reduction. So we are over halfway at our 40% reduction goal. And the majority of technologies that got us there to this 25% achievement were anaerobic digesters. And in particular, covered lagoons that produce that biogas that's now uh, converted into fuel for vehicle fleets. And so by doing so, the reason why there are such financial uh, incentives and credits given is because first we are now covering the lagoons and no gases can 
be emitted from the manure. So we are saving those emissions. But secondly, we are now avoiding diesel emissions and we are replacing them with RNG emissions and they are much better for the environment compared to the diesel. And so this is a, what people call a, dummy, a, a double whammy. So a double impact that is highly incentivized. And so that is, uh, that is very lucrative to our farmers and so many people jump onto that train. That, that sounds interesting. We may end up getting some more covered lagoons um, in the future. <laughs> um, could you comment on the water footprint and how to reduce it in dairy production and beef production? And I'll try to see if I can find that slide. Um, so the water, the, water, the water footprint uh, in the dairy sector is probably, is probably a much larger environmental concern than the carbon footprint or any other environmental footprint. Because um, the dairy sector actually uses a lot of water. And now I'm not talking about green water which is so-called green water, which is rainwater. But I'm talking about blue water, which is uh, tap water. And if you look at this slide here, you see that 5.1% of all U.S. water withdrawal is going into the dairy sector. And that's actually a large number. This is not going into drinking water for cows. You see it on the left side of this slide. But it's going into the feed production. Um, you know, almost 5% of the total water use in the United States goes into growing feed for cows. And that obviously is a really high number. Um, so um, that to me is, is one of the bigger issues um, than the carbon footprint. And we really have to think about um, what kind of feed can we use for our cows that has a relatively low uh, water footprint. Some of the the forages we feed are very thirsty, and so I think that this is something that will come our way uh, in the future. Do you have any insight? Um, quite often, replacements for dairy, uh, like almond milk or oat milk, those sort of um, nut juices. They what sort of water footprint do they have? Well, that's an excellent question. So first of all, I um, I like your, your, your wording of nut juices much better than um, almond milk because almonds and, and, and soy and so on, they don't lactate. So I, I will not call them milk ever. Um, a study was done uh, comparing dairy milk versus almond juice. And uh, that was done at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. And, uh, and they indeed found that the almond juice had a 10 times lower carbon footprint compared to the real milk, 10 times lower carbon footprint. But the almond juice had a 17, one seven, 17 times higher water footprint. They needed, you need 17 times more water to grow a gallon or a liter of almond juice compared to milk. And the reason is that nuts are very thirsty. It takes about, it takes about uh, a gallon of water, so almost four liters uh, of water to grow one single nut, one single almond nut. Uh, it takes two gallons, almost eight liters to grow one single walnut. And so these things are 
very thirsty and uh, and people need to be careful to say well we should just switch to nut juices now instead of dairy because it has a low environmental footprint that's not really true if you look at it from a more comprehensive perspective so it seems like yet again it's it's a matter of marketing and and discussing and perhaps looking at some of the ways of both reducing the um, excessive nitrogen but through careful feeding and using utilizing some of the abilities of sequestration through um, grasslands and then telling people how little water it requires in comp- comparison. Um, I have a question from Paula that I'll go ahead and ask for her. Um, this is when she got through email. How do fertilizers used in pastures and crops affect gas emissions? Are there some of them that are less harmful? The answer is yes. There are very large differences across uh, fertilizer types. Um, But the question is so complex that there's no way I can answer it right now. Uh, The reason is that there are, you know, people oftentimes just think of methane or they think of ammonia, but there's much more to the emission profile of a, let's say, fertilizer than these two gases. There are so-called volatile organic compounds. There are oxides of nitrogen. There are greenhouse gases. There are criteria pollutants such as ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. Depending upon which fertilizer you use and depending upon how well you dose it and when you apply it, you can design almost the profile of potential emissions that come off. So what is the most important thing, in my opinion, so on the one hand, on the fertilizer side, chemical fertilizers, all chemical fertilizers are high in the energy used during production. And that means the carbon footprint of producing chemical fertilizers is always high and higher than using animal manure. Uh, So that's the one point I want to make. The second point I want to make is it is absolutely paramount that we apply all fertilizer, regardless of type, at agronomic rates, that we apply those fertilizers at the time that the plants, the crops are ready to take them on, that we don't apply them in the middle of winter or so just because our storages are full, we need to get rid of them. If we do that, then the the, the nutrients that we are applying will affect the environment, whether it's the air, the climate, or the water. So we need to apply those things in a responsible way at times when the crops are ready to take them. That's more important than the type of fertilizer you use uh, and so forth. Applying it in an agronomic agronomic manner is, uh, is paramount. Thank you. I know that was a complex question without a really good direct answer. Paula, unless you have more questions, I do not. So I just, oh, thank you so much. This was fantastic. It's a little bit different than the usual webinar we have, which is very applied. I think um, if our listeners take home one message, it is to be an advocate and and get the the story out there and and to be brave. I mean, we, uh, (laughs) Lynn and I were a little bit aghast at what some of these people say. And um, thank you, Frank, for taking them on and, and being brave. And I guess we all need to step up and 
stop just talking among ourselves and, and reach out and talk to other people. Yeah, I think we, uh, I think that we provide an incredibly important service. I think that, um, that there are two main sectors in society, two sectors that really, really matter. And right now during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, we really feel those. The one is the sector providing health and the other one is the sector providing food. The health sector is the one that gets all the attention, the doctors, the nurses. But what are we without the food producing sector? And think about what kind of criticism farmers are facing day in, day out, many to such an extent where they say, you know what, I don't need this. I'm 60 years old, uh, I'm about to retire, and I, I don't want my kids to take over. We need to stop this process, okay? The food sector is of strategic importance to any society in the world. Our farmers need to stand up and be proud and explain and discuss and be part of societal uh, discussions because currently those discussions and decisions are made above and beyond the heads of those people producing the food. And that is not right and it has to change. Thank you. Yes, yes. And <laughs> you can tell that you are, you're really passionate about this. Um, I want to just thank you again. This has been fantastic. Thank you for everybody for attending. I have recorded it, so we will be producing it and getting it up as a link on our website. Um, Frank, again, thank you for joining us. Paula, it's great to see you again. Um, everybody stay safe and <laughs> stay occupied. Use your, use your good, good knowledge to spread the spread information. Okay. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>